Well, hello and welcome to another edition of the Informed Traveler podcast, a weekly travel podcast where our goal is to help you become a more informed traveler. And I'm your host, Randy Sharman. It was on November 11th at the 11th hour, 100 years ago, that the First World War came to an end. So we will honor and remember those who fought in past wars on our podcast this week. We'll chat with Wolf Ponick, president of Trafalgar Canada, about their tours to the battlefields of World War I and World War II. Plus, we'll visit the historic St. Ermans Hotel in London, England, a place that dates back to 1899 and was once headquarters to World War II covert operations. It's a fascinating story that we'll learn more about. But first, we're going to replay a conversation we had last year on the proper etiquette and tips for visiting those war memorials overseas. The tips still apply today. So here's the conversation we had with John DeRossier. He is the Director of European Operations for Veterans Affairs Canada. Let's talk about the uh, webpage that's on the Veterans Affairs uh, website. Tips for visiting overseas memorials. Uh, I was kind of surprised uh, actually to find this on the Veterans Affairs uh, website. And there's a lot of information on there. A lot of it's common sense. But uh, maybe just tell the role of Veterans Affairs uh, and your role uh, as far as looking after these monuments monuments and memorials. Yeah, uh, I have the privilege every day to uh, welcome Canadians in the world to uh, 13 First World War uh, monuments in Belgium and France and and, and certainly for for Canadians these are sites that are that are important and, and many uh, Canadians make that pilgrimage over to Europe, and it's a once-in-a-lifetime trip, and certainly is one that, that comes with a lot of emotions and life-changing experiences. Mm-hmm. And one of the tips on there, research before you arrive. Uh, a lot of this seems like common sense, but uh, there's some little details in there. Maybe you can explain a little further. Yeah, um, so many of the sites are in, in rural parts of Belgium and France. So, so many people that come over think they can uh, land land at Charles de Gaulle in Paris, and, and within a few minutes be at these sites. So, certainly researching a bit of where you want to go, understanding you know there's distances involved. So, do you need to rent a car? Is it a tour operator that would be best positioned to uh, get you where you need to go? And some people come because there's a personal connection. There's a, there's a linkage between maybe a grandfather or a great-grandfather that served in the First World War. So th- there's a lot of information available on our website or, or tips to to know where maybe your your loved one who who who, who, who fell in, in during the First World War, what cemetery they may be buried in, mm-hmm. um, sites such as the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, which, which is a, an incredible site, uh, uh, Randy, in, in terms of allowing people to do that research from their computers back at home, um, downloading the map of the particular cemetery, because some of these cemeteries have thousands and thousands of grave markers. So to be able to go to the site and know exactly what part of that particular cemetery they can visit. Mm-hmm. And even simple things like uh, hours and times of day that it's open and you can actually visit, right? Absolutely. So most of the cemeteries uh, don't have necessarily hours of operations, but for example, here at the Canadian National Vimy Memorial or at our Beaumont Hamill uh, Memorial, there's actually hours of operations between 9 and 5 and, and certainly some tips in terms of uh, the weather is just like Canada. It can be sunny on one day and it can be rainy and snowy on the next. So just the little things in terms of what kind of footwear, you know, wear, wear clothes warmer weather uh, type clothes in, in the fall and, and tips like that. Uh, 
etiquette is one of the biggest things that uh, I think that people uh, need reminders of, or maybe some people don't even know some of the things that they should or shouldn't be doing. There's a lot of tips on there. Things like climbing on the monuments and running and shouting and playing games and those types of things. Uh, photos was the one that, you know, there seems to be uh, in the news lately, people taking selfies, inappropriate selfies at uh, memorials and monuments and things like that. So there's some good tips on there about photos, right? There is. So certainly the war memorials and the cemeteries are solemn places, but we want people to come visit. That's that's the purpose of the journey. And we certainly don't want to say, please, uh, you know, view it from outside of the walls. So certainly we encourage people to visit, to walk the rows uh, and take photos. But but as you said, photos that are are um, tasteful, that, that, that are truly honoring those that, that paid the ultimate sacrifices. And then while you're in the cemeteries or at the monuments, you may see little things like Canadian flags. People like to leave photos and personal uh, mementos. Those are there for a reason. And we certainly would ask people just to leave them there. And, and certainly you can look at them and read them. But, but, but that's somebody else's uh, way of uh, paying tribute. And, and we certainly encourage to, to leave those in place. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing more and more people visiting the monuments over in Europe? Absolutely. So, so the 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 uh, what, the hundredth anniversary of the First World War since uh, 2014, right out to next year, 2018, is is really encouraged people to learn a little bit more of their ancestry, to learn what their great grandfathers or, or their connections to the First World War have done. And, and uh, for example, at our Canadian sites here at Beaumont Hamel and uh, at Vimy. You know, Vimy alone sees 700,000 people a year coming through the doors. So wow. we, we see it's amazing the amount of people and, and Canadians, but also British and French and, and from people from all over the world that are coming to pay tribute. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, any uh, other tips or, or other reminders that uh, you'd like to add uh, before we go? Yeah, uh, kind of back to the to to the start is, is certainly um, there are distances between the sites and, and and you need to be prepared for that. So it's either you rent a car or you have a tour operator. Just be prepared that it, it, things may look a lot uh, closer than they actually are, and, and come prepared. Bring a light lunch, uh, water, or, uh, and be prepared to bring your your uh, garbage back out with you. That's the one thing we would certainly ask. Mm-hmm. But you know, in all honesty, these are wonderful sites: Canadian sites, British sites, uh, sites from 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 soldiers from all over this world, and, and they're certainly here to be visited, to pay tribute in them, and and, and, re, and truly pay that honor that uh, these men and women certainly deserve. Very true. John DeRossi is the Director of European Operations for Veterans Affairs Canada. You can find the tips for visiting overseas memorials on the Veterans Affairs website at veterans.gc.ca. Thanks for your insight, John. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this week, in honor of Remembrance Day, we remember those who sacrificed so much for us all. And one place that has a very colorful history and played a prominent role during the Second World War is the historic St. Ermin's Hotel, a place that, in 1940, Winston Churchill held a historic meeting at, and he asked a group of remarkable people to join him in what he called setting a Europe ablaze. 
Now, this unit carried out covert operations during World War II from their headquarters, an entire floor of the St. Ermin's Hotel. So to help explain that story further is Tim Fordham, the PR manager of the St. Ermin's. The website is stermansthotel.co.uk. Hi, Tim. Oh, hi, Randy. Before we get into some of the uh, colourful background and the history of the uh, St. Ermin's Hotel, uh, tell me where it's located. It's in central London. It's, it's perfectly placed for, for tourism in that it's about 200 metres away from the Houses of Parliament, Westminster Abbey, um, the number 10 Downing Street where our Prime Minister lives, and Buckingham Palace. It's kind of in the, you know, if, uh, if, if I drew a circle around Buckingham Palace, Downing Street, uh, Westminster Abbey, and Victoria, then St. Ermans Hotel would be right slap in the middle. So centrally located, it must be fantastic for tourists who want to visit all those uh, sites and see uh, all the uh, the attractions there. They can just step out the door, and it's right there for them, right? Yeah, you can just walk. I mean, that's that's the nice thing. I mean, London London is 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 a good city for walking um, anyway. And I always advise people if they're going to come to London, do do bring your walking shoes because you see so much more. I mean, I've lived in London for thirty years. And, I, and, and for the first 20, I didn't know where anything was because I used to catch the tube every day. So you, do, you see nothing. You, you, do, you go down into the ground, you travel on a train for 20 minutes, you come up, you pop out of the ground. And although you've, you've got to where you want to go to, you've no, idea how, you know, you've no idea what was actually above ground when you're on the train. <laughs> so I, I would think it's best to walk around London, to be honest. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you have a very colorful past at the hotel. Uh, it all began in 1899, I understand. So let's start there and, and move into some of the other stories. No, cool. Actually, it was 1892. No, no, sorry to correct you, but it was 1892 when the building was first built, and it was built as an apartment block. We call them mansion blocks in London. Um, and so it's about six stories high, um, and it was turned into a hotel in 1899. You're absolutely right there, and has been a hotel ever since. So uh, I imagine a lot of stories. Let's uh, focus a little bit on uh, the role the, the hotel played during the Second World War, though. Uh, being uh, located where it is, uh, a lot of colorful figures uh, came in and out of the, uh, the doors of the uh, St. Germain's. Well, it, it, well, it did, absolutely. I mean, being located where it is, it, it's, it's, as I've already said, it's within 200 meters of the House of Parliament and uh, all of our civil service. So the entire government and the House of Lords would have used the hotel because it's within easy walking distance. It's also slightly tucked away. It's quite a little secret gem, actually. It's tucked away behind um, a private garden um, courtyard. So, so there are lots of little places where you can sit and be a bit secret and have a chat to people that maybe you, know, you shouldn't be seen talking to, for example. But, but also, to be, to be a bit more specific, it's right in the center of the, of the government's secret intelligence service officers, you know, MI9, had offices on Caxton Street, which is where the hotel is for, for many years. Queen Anne's Gate, which is very close by, um, we, we held, the, held the chief office of the Special Intelligence Service. The Special Intelligence Service officers were in artillery mansions on Victoria Street, which is 20 yards away. Um, and, and, you know, we still get people coming in today saying, do, you, you know, do we think that spies still use the hotel? <laughs> and I have to say to them, well, we wouldn't know because <laughs> exactly. they, let us know, they wouldn't be very good spies, would they? <laughs> very true. If you could spot the spy, they're not going to have their job for very long, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they, they, need to, you know, they need to get a day job. <laughs> I, I understand uh, that Winston Churchill uh, frequented there. Well, I, there's, there's, I, I suspect he did, absolutely. Right next door to the St. Hermes Hotel, very much. The St. Hermes Hotel is on Caxton Street. There's, there's a building called Caxton Hall, which was a meeting place and a, and a hall. It's now been turned into apartments. Um, but it was a hall up to about the mid-70s, 
Um, but more importantly, Winston Churchill held many of his press conferences during the Second World War at that hall, um, particularly during the first two or three years of the war. So, you know, Winston Churchill used to start the day with a bottle of his favorite champagne, Paul Roger. So I cannot believe that he'd have done, say, for example, a press conference about the evacuation of Dunkirk in the Caxton Hall, and after that, not gone next door to our bar for a drink. Mm-hmm. Well, he probably needed one after all of that, I would imagine. I think he needed more than one after all that. Um, but of course, actually, the, the, the other interesting thing as well is that, they, is that the hotel is reputed to have a secret tunnel. Um, now, obviously, as a PR man, I would never deny that. But to be honest, I can't deny it either, I, nor can I confirm it. But, but I do know, because I'm, I'm quite a little local history you know, freak, as it were, I do know that that part of London is absolutely riddled with tunnels, not, not just from the Underground Railway, but from thousands of years of, of, of occupation of people living there. Well, interesting stuff. Uh, any other stories that come out uh, that stand out? Well, there, there, there's some quite, a bit of, quite a bit of stories about the Second World War. For, for example, it is absolutely true that um, Churchill formed an organization called Special Operations Executive, the SOE. Um, now, their task was to be parachuted into occupied France and uh, undertake sabotage on behalf, obviously, of the Allies against the Nazi Germans. Um, and that organization was founded in the St. Ermans, and for the first nine months of its life, it's the entire top floor of the St. Ermans was their offices. Um, aside from that, there was quite a famous case, there, there, quite a famous case of, of, of a double agent that was found in the British Secret Service, in MI5. It, it's known in England as the Cambridge Five. There were five undergraduates at Cambridge University who were recruited by the then KGB in the late 30s. And they very gradually worked their way into the very top echelons of, of the British Secret Service, fundamentally. Two of them, Burgess and McLean, had offices in the St. Ermans Hotel because the MI5 during the Second World War got too big for its own offices. And so they, they took over another two floors of the hotel during the Second World War. Um, and it is reputed, and I, I, I suspect it is true, to be honest, that they used the Caxton Bar to, to give a lot of our secrets away to the Russian to the Russian handlers. Would you know this if you stayed at the hotel today? Are there uh, you know the stories and, and images uh, and photos around the hotel to reflect that? Yes, you would. There's, well, actually, oddly enough, there, there was a book published about a year ago, which is on sale in the reception, um, called called the Spy Hotel, uh, and it really charts the the history of the involvement of the hotel in the in the not only the British secret services but also the other secret services that obviously have offices in London, as it were. Um, but what is really interesting, actually, I think, is, is that right by our main um, lifts in the lobby, there's a silk scarf which has on it, it's, a, it's about two foot square, maybe, so maybe 50 centimeters square, and it's an original silk scarf made for one of the special operations executives, agents who were going to be parachuted into France. And there were silk scarves that they, that they printed their ciphers, they printed their, their codes, that they could use when they were radioing in to back to London, mm. um, and also the codes that London would, would use when they radioed to an agent. And they were, they were printed on silk scarves for two reasons. One is it burns very quickly, so you can get rid of it if you need to very fast. Mm-hmm. And, and secondly, they were light, so they, they would be sewn into the, into the linings of a coat or a jacket. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lady who was trained as a SOE agent sent us her silk scarf, having seen the the history of the, the centre, and she thought that we'd be interested, and we were very interested and actually very touched because it is an original silk scarf. It's an original wow. um, coded silk scarf that this girl took with her to France. Amazing. It's almost like uh, staying at a uh, war museum then, almost. 
but it's comfier. <laughs> <laughs> Much. Uh, was it damaged during the war at all? No, it wasn't, actually, oddly enough. There, and, and, um, and again, during the, the writing of the book that I talked about, The Spy History of the Hotel, um, I, I got to know the author quite well, Peter Matthews, and, and he did a lot of research around the hotel and also around the war years. And it turns out that Westminster Council, um, I don't know whether you guys know this, but London is actually two cities. There's the city of London, which is where the financial district is, and there's the city of Westminster. And you can't really tell the difference, but, but the city of Westminster is a city of its own accord. Um, but they kept individual accounts of every single bomb that was dropped during the war, every single one. Wow. Um, and, so, and so we know that on the, on the crossroads just outside the St. Ermans, there was an incendiary bomb went off, which I think damaged some of the outer wall. But other than that, the, it, it went through the Second World War and the Blitz unscathed, which is very lucky. Actually. No kidding, right? Well, it sounds like it's a fascinating history, a fascinating place to stay. Uh, what's it like there now? Obviously, it's everything's modern, and like you say, it's like being in a museum, but way more comfortable. Uh, yes, no, it's <laughs> no, it, no, it, 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 it's um, well, it, it was refurbished about six years ago at a cost of about thirty to forty million pounds. So it, it is looking very splendid these days. Um, it, it, to, to be honest, it's a four-star deluxe hotel. It's not five-star, it's four-star deluxe. But the reason why it's four-star deluxe is that um, British civil servants and British parliamentarians can't stay in five-star hotels. <laughs> so, so why would you build a five-star hotel? And, 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 and I guess your listeners will know this, but you know the difference between a deluxe four-star and a five-star hotel could well be that we've only got three lifts, not four. <laughs> you know, or, or it could be that some of the bathrooms are, you know, are not quite as big as the others. It, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a difference that you wouldn't, you wouldn't really know. Exactly, exactly. Well, it's, it sounds like a fascinating place to stay. Obviously, the location's incredible. The uh, St. Hermann's Hotel, uh, stermannshotel.co.uk, and Tim Fordham is the PR director. Uh, thanks for sharing the stories. I appreciate it, Tim. Listen, Randy, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, um, and if you get yourself to London, I'd love to buy you a beer in the Caxton Bar. I would love it, too. Well, in this week's podcast, we are commemorating the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. So joining us now is Wolf Ponick. He is the president of Trafalgar Canada. They have some great tours of the battlefields of World War One and World War Two that you can take. Thanks for doing this, Wolf. Hello, Randy. Good to hear from you. Always a pleasure to have you on. You're always uh, very insightful on the tours that uh, Trafalgar Canada offers. Uh, coming up next year is the 75th anniversary of the uh, D-Day invasion in Normandy. That is part of uh, the World War One and World War Two battlefields tour. Twelve days, nine cities. It's a lot to talk about, Wolf. So <laughs> we'll try and get it as, as much as we can. But it actually starts in London, doesn't it? It does start in London. And, you know, D-Day was planned in London and the troops were there in England and Scotland preparing for the invasion, uh, getting probably restless. Uh, the plans were being drawn. So we do visit uh, not only the uh, War Museum, but we also do a bit of a sightseeing in London to put things uh, into perspective. And we start learning and getting drawn into the whole D-Day story thanks to our specialized travel directors who have great knowledge of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. Well, and then you also get a chance to actually cross the English, English Channel, uh, certainly not in uh, the way the troops did back then, but still gives you a kind of a feel for what they had to go through, right? 
Exactly, and that is the point of why we have gone for the ferry crossing. We go on the way to Portsmouth. We go to stop at Churchill's Chartwell House, where he found really a lot of calm uh, and 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 the, the, the one that inspired him to write to draw his watercolors. We go to the, see the Overlord embroidery, which tells in thirty-four handcrafted panels the story of the D-Day. And it is kind of juxtaposition to the Bayou Tapestry, which on the other side of the channel depicts the invasion of Normans of the English Isles or the British Isles. So there is a lot of history that's kind of crisscrossing itself. And, you know, although this is themed, it's not only about the D-Day. It has all of the elements of Trafalgar program, deep dive into the culture, some unique experiences, opportunity to meet the locals, to try local food. And I think that that is a good part of it. And it is good for our listeners to know it is a remembrance theme, but it is a great travel opportunity and a great experience. Mm -hmm, Which we will touch upon because you do, uh, you visit Paris rather, and you have some time in Paris and uh, some other areas. And I actually end up in Amsterdam, if I'm correct, right? Yes, uh, well, this is the one we're talking about. We do have a program in our brochure, but we also have a special program, which is uh, land only nine, ten days, actually starts in London and in Amsterdam. So we go through London into Portsmouth overnight ferry to Caen. Then we go see the D-Day events in Normandy on day four. On day five, we go visit the beaches. We go to Aromange. We see the first house at the beach over there that was liberated by the Canadian troops. Then we go to Normandy to visit Amiens, Vimy, and Ypres. Amiens, Vimy, and Ypres are kind of a little bit more important for the, not a little bit, they're important for the First World War. Mm -hmm. From there, we go through Belgium into Holland. So from Ypres to Zonnebeck, Wadehem to Middleburg, and then because the history tells us, and, and many people still remember from the stories of, of their uh, family members who may have participated in the operation, Holland was liberated by Canadian troops. Mm-hmm. And there is a fantastic uh, feeling of gratitude that Dutch people have preserved towards Canadian army and towards Canadian visitors. So we'll go to Wageningen, where our local specialist will show us the exact location of the surrender of the German troops to the 1st Canadian Army in May of 1945. And then we end on a less of a remembrance theme, then we end in in super vibrant and super interesting and cool city of Amsterdam. And we do some sightseeing. We go to Volendam, the beautiful fishing village, and we do the cultural insight into the uh, art of making clogs and... and, uh, and uh, different types of Dutch sea. And that's where we have a visit to the Paul family, where we have our Be My Guest dinner. And Be My Guest is really an opportunity for our guests to visit true local people. These are not hospitality industry people or a restaurant where several groups would converge. Mm -hmm. This is a family that we have made an arrangement with to show us their farm, to show us their lifestyle, to break bread with our guests and to have a very casual, very uh, everyday conversation about, you know, their situation, their lifestyle, 
the things that are on their mind and things that preoccupy them or make them happy or or affect their life in any way. Mm-hmm. So that's in a nutshell. Uh, in terms of the uh, uh, remembrance sites, Randy, there is so many of them in that part of the world that it is really almost impossible to kind of keep one's cool because when you walk through those memorials, when you see the cemeteries, when you see the beaches, honestly, like you almost have pictures crossing through your mind because it is really a a huge, hugely tragic story, but also a part of our common history and the part of our national history. Mm -hmm. Well, like you said, there's so many uh, different memorials to visit, different uh, historic sites to visit, both from World War I and World War Two, and and you touched on it. You've you visited these spots yourself. Uh, what's the what's the feeling you have when you're actually there versus you know seeing it on a newsreel or uh, reading it in a book? It is very different because you know you hear the story from our from our travel director, and they're very well versed. And I will mention but two: one from the Second World War, from the D-Day operation, Canadian troops and Canadian paratroopers landed near Caen. And uh, one, one uh, detail was so successful that they went too far behind German lines. And they didn't know how far behind the German lines they were. Eventually, they were captured and they were taken to the abbey. It's called Arden Abbey. And we go to visit it. And uh, tragically, they were interrogated and executed. And there is a mini memorial maintained by the monks from the Abbey since those days and by the uh, Canadian government that tells the story of the Ardennes Abbey tragic event. And that was one of the events that really, really uh, tugged my heartstrings, mm-hmm. uh, one of the sites. Uh, the other one is the house in Aromanche, the first house, and it's historical because that was the first house captured by any of the armies on D-Day, and it was captured by Canadians. And I was there some years ago, in actually in 2016, and uh, we not only heard a story, but we had uh, quite some military experts in our group. And, you know, just putting things into context and, and going to see Canadian Juno Beach Centre and all those things is just painting a very different picture than what we can read from the books or even partake in in, in the movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, June 6th is the 75th anniversary of uh, the D-Day invasion. Uh, this tour runs all year round, though, right? This isn't just something that uh, is focused on uh, that time of year, right? We have a special departure that's going to be at D-Day beaches for the celebration, for the, for the memorial, but we also run it on a year-round basis. So there are, there are uh, multiple options for anybody who's interested. So we, we call them to talk to their travel agents and then call Trafalgar and figure out which dates and which kind of package works for them the mm-hmm. best. Well, it sounds like a fantastic tour. It is high, high on my list, Wolf. I'm just saying, <laughs> World War One, World War Two battlefield tour. 12 days, nine cities. It covers a lot, but boy, you get your money's worth, I'm sure. Uh, you can find uh, more information on the uh, Trafalgar website, trafalgar.com. And Wolf Podick is the president of Trafalgar Canada. It's always a pleasure to chat with you, Wolf. 
Pleasure is always mine, Randy, and we hope to host you and many other Canadians to really see the massive contribution that Canada has given to the effort in both great wars. And that is this week's Informed Traveller podcast. I want to thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, take a minute, rate the show, leave us a review, and tell a friend about the podcast. And if you want to drop me a line, my email address is randy at theinformedtraveler.ca. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash informedtraveler, or you can follow me on Twitter at informedtraveler.com.